Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts this morning, that as we consider the scriptures, your spirit would be freeing us from the love of the things of the world, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And Lord, we pray that you would be making us people who long for you and who love goodness and holiness and truth. And Lord, we ask that you would cause Psalm 79 to work this in us. We pray that your word would have its way by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. I didn't pick this text for this reason, but it's appropriate. Uh, it, it's, it's remarkable to me how in the providence of God, here we are at a first Sunday in a new place, and we come to Psalm 79. And I would invite you to open to Psalm 79. And, and what I find to be remarkable about this is the way that Psalm 78 ends. And, and I think that there is a, a, an intended connection between the end of Psalm 78 and the beginning of Psalm 79. And that connection speaks directly to our situation as we have, as we have entered into this new uh, place of meeting this week. So at the end of Psalm 78, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we read in verse 67 that the Lord rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And right before this, we had read about how the Lord in verse 60 forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. And if you were here when we went through Psalm 78, you know that there was the tabernacle was set up in this city called Shiloh, and then because the people who, who set up that tabernacle were just as wicked as the, as the wilderness generation had been, that tabernacle in Shiloh was destroyed under the wrath of God. And that, that led in the history of Israel uh, to the Lord uh, identifying David as king and then eventually identifying Mount Zion as the place where the temple would be built. And that brings us to Psalm 79. And what we see in Psalm 79 is that what happened in Shiloh is what happened in Jerusalem. And, and this is very important for us because this passage is, is talking to us about a time when Israel sinned in Jerusalem the same way that they had sinned in Shiloh. And so the same wrath of God that destroyed the tabernacle in Shiloh is visited on the temple in Jerusalem. And what we want to do is we want to see in Psalm 79 what brought God's wrath down. And then we want to flee it. We, we, want to, we want to see what it was about them that resulted in them bringing on themselves the same judgment in Jerusalem that they had experienced in Shiloh. So what was it? Well, the text doesn't speak explicitly to it. But there are implicit things in Psalm 79 that, that we can identify as, as the cause of God's wrath falling. And, and this is what I would say about that. At Shiloh, the place where that tabernacle was, 
the people of Israel did not repudiate the worldview of the Canaanites. And at Jerusalem, the people of Israel did not repudiate the worldview of the Canaanites. The, the passage that was read earlier, the passage that John read from 1 Kings chapter 14, I think that 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 situation is actually what's being described here in Psalm 79. This psalm's a lot like Psalm 74. You, you may remember that, that I suggested when we were in Psalm 74, which is another description of an attack on the temple. I suggested that uh, what had happened there was the same incident also described, again, in, in 1 Kings 14. And, and in that passage, 1 Kings 14, Israel provoked the Lord to wrath. And did you notice how they did that? It, it was said in that passage that there were male shrine prostitutes in the land. They were engaged in the Canaanite fertility worship. This was idolatry that involved sexual immorality. I don't know who those male shrine prostitutes were for. I don't know if they were for the women or for the men or what, but it's disgusting. It's awful. And I don't think we have to look very hard to see that there is sexual immorality and idolatry all around us in our world. And what Israel failed to do was say, our worship of Yahweh doesn't fit with idolatry and sexual immorality. And what we need to do is say, our worship of the Lord will not allow sexual immorality and idolatry. What we need to see here in Psalm 79 is that what sexual immorality and idolatry produce is defilement, Death under the wrath of God. So, so we need to associate all the things that would lure us into idolatry. All the things that would, that would cause us to look to something other than God for ultimate satisfaction. This is what leads us into things like sexual immorality. This is what leads us into the worship of money or power or influence or whatever the case may be. We, we look to those things for satisfaction and for significance and and. We need to recognize that what that's going to bring about is what Psalm 79 describes, and it's horrifying. Um, so as we, as we approach Psalm 79, let me just briefly tell you what we're going to see to, to preview this. Um, the, this psalm is going to pivot on these two questions. There's a question in verse 5, how long, O Lord? That's the first question. And then the second question is in verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Those two questions mark the turning points in the psalm. And in verses 1 through 4, before the first question, what we see is the way that the nations have defiled the land. So, so think with me about what's happened here. The nations led Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry, and then God's wrath was visited on Israel by means of the nations. That speaks to us because what we've got to do is we've got to resist the way that the culture would lead us into defilement. And, and particularly, we need to resist this at the point of sexual immorality. The, the culture would lead us into defilement. Idolatry, I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that most of the believers in this room are not going to be led into idolatry by rational persuasion or... Uh, by actually thinking that there's some other power out there that might actually help you. I think the path to, to idolatry for most believers in this room is going to be the path that leads through sexual immorality. That there's going to be temptation to sexual sin, probably taking the form of pornography, 
that is going to result in idolatrous actions, idolatrous ways of life, um, and, and, and maybe, God forbid, even an, an idolatrous lifestyle. People, people forsake the faith often more because of their sin than because of what's going on in their heads. So, so we want to resist and refuse what happens to Israel in verses 1 through 4. And then, then Asaph asks the question in verse 5, how long? And then what follows in verses 6 through 9 is Asaph appealing to God for the sake of God's name for forgiveness. And then after the second question in verse 10, why should the nation say, Asaph appeals to the Lord to keep his promises, to uphold his justice. So again, I, I think this psalm is teaching us that if we do not repudiate the worldview and the values and the desires of the nations, the world outside, if we don't repudiate their approach to life, we will be thereby defiled and we will suffer the wrath of God. So let's look together at verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 79. This is another psalm of Asaph. All of the psalms from 73 through 83 are psalms of Asaph. And as, as I noted last time, uh, there's a statement over in Chronicles about the words of Asaph, probably referring to these psalms. So I take it that this guy Asaph that David appointed uh, to, to help lead the worship of God in, in Jerusalem at um, the house of God there, this guy Asaph wrote these psalms. And look at what he says in verse 1. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. This again links up with the end of Psalm 78. If you look back at the end of verse 71, um, David was brought to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So these two psalms are tied together. So, so the inheritance that David established, that David shepherded, now the nations have come in after David's life, during the life of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And then he goes on to say there in verse 1, they have defiled your holy temple. What's interesting about this is that for a Gentile, for someone who's unclean, someone who is not ritually pure, someone who has not offered sacrifices for the atonement of their sin and then lived in accordance with Israel's cultic regulations to, to produce them, produce cleanness in them, uh, for someone like that to enter into the temple would communicate uncleanness. It would defile the temple. But what they do is much worse than that. So these unclean people have entered into the holy place. And then it goes on to say there in verse 1, they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. So these guys were not gentle. The, the other night, um, there were these large cabinets downstairs that we were trying to get moved up out. And um, we finally decided that, that uh, it would be better to just try to take these things apart. And then it was decided that rather, rather than take them apart, they would just be hacked to death. So... <laughs> So, so Paul and Matt had hammers and crowbars and things, and they were just whacking away on these cabinets until they were just reduced to these shards of wood. That's what the, the nations have done in the temple and in Jerusalem. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. And then verse 2, in, in Leviticus, um, anything, anything dead is defiling. So if you're in a tent and somebody else in the tent dies, you are made unclean by your proximity to death. And then if, 
if, you're, if your skin is somehow uh, scraped or cut and you're bleeding, you're made unclean by the blood that has left your body. Look at, look at what verse 2 describes. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. So these nations, they killed the Israelites, and then they just left the corpses there to be eaten by the birds and the beasts. Verse 3, they have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. So the unclean nations have violated God's holy domain. They entered God's inheritance and made it unclean. They defiled the temple that was to be marked by God's own holiness. They reduced the city to rubble. They made God's servants, his people, carcasses to be eaten by the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. They shed the blood of God's people throughout the city. There was nobody to bury the bodies and as a result, the holy city stank of rotting flesh. Human bodies in decay lay unburied in the streets. And it, goes, it gets worse. In the same way that those who triumph in battle are honored as heroic, those defeated in battle are shamed and vanquished. The strong taunt the weak. Look at verse 4. Asaph says, We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. We need to apply this to our lives in this way. We, we need to come to the place where, where we see sin to be profane because we've experienced the holiness of God. This is the holiness of God being visited against Israel's sin. And we will only grieve the corrupting and debasing effects of our sin if we see how it has defiled what God made pure. So I would encourage you to try to, in your imagination, see these corpses on the ground. And, and I don't know if you've ever smelled a, a, a rotting human cadaver but if you, can, if you can somehow get that putrefying, awful stench in your nostrils, what you will begin to feel, I hope, I, we pray, this is what we want to feel, we want to feel the loathsome horror of purity befouled. And the right thing to do in response to this is to cry out to God. But, but we're not quite there yet. Because... Because what we want to feel, what we want to feel is the way that God made everything to live and to be beautiful and to be holy. And all things good are holy. Those good things are perverted and ruined by sin. And the question facing us when we're tempted to sexual immorality, to idolatry, the question facing us is whether we love what is good and pure and holy, or whether we love what results in the revulsion of rotting corpses. And that's what we've got to associate with temptation. We've got to put the rotting corpse next to the thing that tempts us so that we will turn away from it. We must associate the sin that tempts us 
with the decomposition of the carrion that it leaves behind. To repent of sin. If, you, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever and maybe you've heard Christians talk to you about you need to repent of your sin. To repent of sin is to turn away from that rotting corpse and to choose life and health instead of the congealed blood in that sack of flesh and the rigor mortis of that carcass on the ground. That's what it is to turn away from sin. It's to choose life. Asaph models a response of faith in verse 5. So to this point in verses 1 through 4, he has he's cried out to God and set before the Lord the way that the nations have defiled and defeated and shamed God's people. And now his question in verse 5 shows that he trusts that the Lord is in control. He believes that that the Lord is powerful enough to make right the wrongs. And he understands that Israel has suffered because of her sin. Look at verse 5. How long, O Lord? That question shows that Asaph believes God's promises. And he expects the promises will be fulfilled. So he's asking, how long... Because he's expecting the promises to be fulfilled. And he also knows that this could only happen if God permits it to happen. This could only happen if God allows this to happen. So the question is, how long, O Lord? And then the next question, will you be angry forever? Shows that he knows this happens as a result of Israel's sin. Israel sinned and brought on God's wrath. That's what resulted in all of this death. The, same, the next question communicates the same thing. Will your jealousy burn like fire? He knows that God's justice pleasure has been visited against Israel. So he's acknowledging Israel's sin. And he's asking how long until, until God relents of that punishment. Because he doesn't expect it to be everlasting and all-consuming. In verses 6 through 9... Asaph begins to call on the Lord to judge the enemies and forgive God's people. And what unites this, this section of the psalm are these references to the name of God. So in verse 6, Asaph speaks of how the, the nations don't call upon God's name. And in verse 9, he twice appeals to the glory of God's name. And, and so what Asaph is doing is modeling a response of faith for us. Everyone who loves life and hates death should pray this way. We should pray this way. Uh, what he's doing is he's distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked. In verse 6, he tells us that first, the wicked don't call on God's name. So these are the unrepentant perverters of everything that's pure. That Asaph says of them in verse 6, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. So Asaph is identifying with God's justice and saying, judge them justly. Punish them. They deserve it because they're unrepentant and they won't look to you. But then he, and, and then he explains why, verse 7, they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation, summarizing verses 1 through 4. Then he begins to speak of God's people here in verse 8. And, and this request is a bold appeal. It, it's a bold appeal that's really astonishing what Asaph asks for here in verse 8. 
Asaph prays to the Lord, do not remember against us our former iniquities. And I wonder if you've ever been wronged. I wonder if, if someone uh, close to you has ever hurt you. In, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel are in a, a, a marital kind of covenant with God. And, and so the Lord, God, is the husband, and the people are the bride. And the bride has gone and been unfaithful. She's committed spiritual adultery. And Asaph is saying here in verse 8, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Can you put yourself in those shoes? If, you're, if you were married and your spouse had been unfaithful to you, sexually immoral against you, and somebody said to you, don't remember the former iniquities, would you be able to forget? I think this is amazing. How could God not remember something? He's omniscient. How could the Holy One undo his awareness of the way that he has been defiled by the actions of his people? Only the omnipotence of God could make it so that within the omniscience of God, right? He's got to use almighty power to make it so that his all knowledge doesn't remember the sins of his people. I, I, don't, know how to, I, I don't know how he does this. But God answers this prayer. God answers this prayer. If you're here this morning and you know you're a sinner, praise God. There's, this is possible for you. This prayer can be answered in your life. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. The Lord, the Lord answers that prayer. He grants that request. And Asaph knows that it's not just raw power, but it's it's motherly compassion that brings this about in the Lord. So he says in verse 8, let your compassion come speedily to meet us. And the word compassion there is a, worm, a word that speaks of the womb. Let your wombish mercy be extended to us. Come quickly to meet us with us, with it. So God's almighty power working with his love somehow makes it so that within his comprehensive knowledge of all things, he doesn't remember the sins of his people against them. And, and Asaph, I think, continues to, to speak to these realities in verse 9. He, having said, we're brought very low. We need this very much. Verse 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. You notice what Asaph is not appealing to. Asaph is not appealing to anything within God's people. He's appealing to God's own concern for God's own glory. I can remember D.A. Carson sort of mocking the idea that God would love us because we're kind of cute. No, that's not what prompts God to love us. God doesn't love us because he needs us, because we're useful to him, or, or because he's got a son. No, God extends his love because this is the kind of God he is. So it doesn't depend upon anything unique about us. It doesn't depend upon us accomplishing anything. God extends his love, for the, just as Asaph prays, for the glory of his name. God extends his love because he intends to be known as the kind of God who is able to reconcile justice and mercy. God is the kind of God who can forget his people's sins. 
And Asaph calls on the Lord to make his name great in just that way. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, deliver us and atone for our sins. Deliver us and atone. So there, there's several things here, aren't there? Don't remember our sins against us. That's one aspect of it. And then this idea of atone for our sins, literally in, in Hebrew, the, the communication is cover over our sins. And so it's as though the sins are going to be covered over so that they're no longer within God's field of perception. And then he forgets them. They're dealt with. It's put away. If atonement is made, the sins will be covered. They won't be remembered. Only God could do this. Eden was defiled by the sin of Adam and Eve. Jerusalem was defiled by the sin of God's people. We humans have a tendency to ruin the best things that God gives us. The only way to overcome this, the only way to overcome, to break this pattern, not to be people who ruin the best thing that God gives us, the only way to stop smuggling our perversity into everything that God means to be holy, the only way to experience this is to pray as Asaph does, to pray for the glory of God's name that he would forget our sins, and then that we would be people who would choose life, not death. And, and that fresh air that takes away the stink, the, the, the cleansing power that washes away the stain of the carcass on the ground, this is what Asaph is asking the Lord to bring. And all this God is pleased to do for those who hate death enough to choose life. That is, for those who turn away from their sin that brings about all that death, which is really just a repudiation of a necrophilia, a love of death. Don't be somebody that loves death. Turn from it. Choose life and holiness and love and trust the one who saves. Asaph continues to pray here in verses 10 through 13, and he has he has bemoaned the defiling of Jerusalem and the shaming of God's people. He's asked how long God is going to permit the outrage and punish his people. He's called on the Lord to do justice on the unrepentant and ask forgiveness and mercy for those who call on God's name. And now he asks, why should the nation say, in verse 10, where is their God? What they're doing is they're taunting Israel. Look at how we're defeating them. Where is their God? Where is their God who would overcome us? Asaph is saying, why should they say this? Now, in, in these final words of the psalm, Asaph is going to return to all the imagery of the opening words of the psalm. So there in verse 10, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. He had spoken of the outpoured blood back in verse 3. He had referred to God's servants back in verse 2. It's like Asaph is saying, visit justice do what's right out of compassion for your people. And we should call on the Lord to, to do this even today. Lord, don't let people think that you are unable to make your name great. Do it here. And then in verse uh, 11, he appeals again to God's compassion. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. And then back in verse 4, he had spoken of the taunts of the neighbors. Now in verse 12, he says, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors 
the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. This is like, this is like praying. Lord, lots of people in our culture think that you're Ill, irrelevant to life. Lots of people in our culture think that they can mock you with impunity. Would you show them that they can't live that way? Would you reveal to them their need for you? This is the way that Asaph is, is praying, that God would do justice. And then finally, in verse 13, Asaph promises praise. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, the inheritance was defiled, uh, the, the enemy laid waste the habitation, but God's people are still the sheep of his pasture. We'll give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Every prayer request in this psalm is an implicit act of thanksgiving and praise to God. And then at the end, Asaph promises explicit praise and thanks for God. The wrath of God on the people and the land seen in the first three verses of this psalm anticipate the wrath that fell on Christ at the cross. And that in turn anticipates the wrath that's going to fall as described in Revelation 6, the passage that Chris read earlier. The reproach borne by God's people in, in, the, in verse 4 anticipates the one who would say, Romans 15, verse 3, Paul says that, that these words belong to Jesus. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Christ took all the reproach. And the answer to this question here in Psalm 79, how long is until the return of Christ. Until the return of Christ. The Lord showed forth his glory when Jesus was lifted up to be highly exalted, when atonement was accomplished so that God's people could have their sins covered so that the Lord could remember them no more. To the believers in this room, I say, juxtapose the image of the rotting corpse with the image of whatever it is that tempts you. Put those two things together. Use that to fight your sin. To the unbelievers in this room, I want to say, I'd, I'd love to talk to you further about these things after the service. And if you, can't, if you can't catch me, you can catch Denny, you can catch Nathan, you can catch Andrew, he's around here, Matt. There, there are lots of guys in this room that would love to talk with you. We would love to visit with you further about what it is to choose life, what it is to know God by faith in Jesus and turning away from sin. Let's all commit ourselves to break this pattern of defiling the good things that God gives us. This pattern of they enter into the land, they defile Shiloh, God's wrath falls. They enter into Jerusalem, they defile Jerusalem, God's wrath falls. That pattern is only going to be broken if we become people who love holiness and hate wickedness. Let's pray together. Father, we marvel that you are a God who can not remember the sins of your people. And you are a God who can uphold the perfection of your justice and at the same time forgive sin. And Lord, we, we would never think you would be this good. But this all comes from your compassion. A compassion that 
is merciful and loving. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to know you as the scriptures reveal you, and we pray that you'd help us to communicate the reality of who you are to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers. And we pray, Lord, that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we would see unaccountable new convert growth through our speaking of the gospel, and that we would experience a renewal in, in this city that comes from new life and people longing to hear the teaching of the scriptures. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself in your word. Help us to love you and to hate sin, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.